If you have a Bible, you want to open up to two places. Matthew 24, we'll begin there, and then Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we'll go to Genesis chapter 6 in a, in a few moments. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. All right, well, um, so here's, here's what I've got to say on the front end of everything that's going to be say, said today. Um, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and we've come to Genesis chapter 6, and so it's going to be called The Days of Noah. But uh, what you need to know is, first of all, we're not going to finish the outline today. And uh, I woke up this morning realizing that there's just no way we're going to be able to uh, get through it unless, unless I rush all the way through. And um, so some of us are going to have some unfinished business issues. But next week, next week we'll go through and we'll finish that. Um, so um, the, the other thing is um, that this is probably the weirdest Bible teaching in the Bible. So we're going to start that today and next week. And, and so what I want you to know is that it kind of bothered me. But then, you know, when we first moved into the building here back in last November, we were at two services. And I really liked that because I could go out and I could say hi to people. I don't always know what to say, but I like to at least say hi to people. And, um, but then we went to three services. And I was, you know, just, so I, I love three services that we have to, but sometimes it can, it can be a little challenging. So I was praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, what are we doing? He, he says, well, you're, you're teaching Genesis chapter 6. That might put you back at two services in, in one week. So just so you know that, just so you know that. So now what, what I want to talk about today is, is um, most of us come from a church background where the Bible has been reduced to financial principles and relationship principles and things like that. But, but we forget that the Bible is also a very supernatural book. And uh, it's also a book of prophecy. It tells us what's going to happen and how things came about. But some of the supernatural aspects of the Bible are so far outside of our box that uh, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it sometimes. And so we don't even talk about it. But we're going to do that beginning today. So um, we're going to start in Genesis or, or Matthew chapter 24. But keep, keep an open mind. We're going to talk about Bible prophecy, some supernatural stuff, and uh, just know I love this stuff. But uh, if, if, if you don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> All right, Genesis, or Matthew 24, it's a few days before Jesus goes to the cross. He's in Jerusalem, and um, verse 1, it says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And uh, you know the story. In 70 AD, Israel ceased to exist as a nation. The temple was torn down just as Jesus said. But from the disciples' perspective, that, that was very hard to swallow. And so they, they, they said, we need to find out more about this. And so they come to Jesus privately, and uh, they're going to ask him three questions. I like to joke and say we call these the three questions, but this is by Vitally important. But uh, verse 3, it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And what I, what I want to share there is that what Jesus is going to talk about here is not something that he shares when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount to the crowd, you know, to the crowd of 5,000 or whatever it might be. This is a private briefing 
given to his disciples, given to his disciples. And uh, so they come to him and they're saying, and they ask three questions, and I've written these down in my Bible, one, two, and three. So he says, they say, tell us when will these things happen, the temple being torn down? And then number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And then number three, the end of the age. So when will these things happen? He's just said the temple's going to be destroyed. And uh, then they say, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They had rightfully paired his coming with the end of the age. And so Jesus is going to answer those three questions. Now, now he's going to take chapter 24 and 25. We're not going to go through all that to answer those three questions, but it's important to understand that he is answering three questions. And, and, and that's important because what happens is somebody will jump in and they'll read some other part of 24 or chapter 25 and they read that and they begin to try to interpret it, but they forget he's answering three questions. When will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So as he begins in verse four, the first thing that I need to tell you, they ask, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus will not say, he doesn't respond by saying, who cares? Why are you focusing in on my coming and the end of the age? I mean, why would you want to know about that? That's not really important. After all, it all pans out in the end. He does not say that. What does he say? Well, verse four, he says, and Jesus answered and said to them, see to it, see to it that no one misleads you. Some of your Bibles will say that no one deceives you. So whether it says deceives or misleads, uh, the idea is Jesus says, I'm going to tell you I'm going to lay it out for you, but you want to make sure that no one misleads you. You're not deceived. This is important. Now you're responsible to know this. And so he begins with an overview and he says, verse five, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. I've underlined that for those things must take place but that is not yet the end. That is not yet the end. So as a believer, so far, we've been told two things. One, don't be misled on these things. And two, don't be frightened. What we find is that the people who are the most misled on these things will be the people who are most frightened of these things. And then he says, these things must take place. Uh, you protesting some of these things, you posting on Facebook against some of these things are not going to change. He says these things must take place. So they're, they're going to take place. So here's how they're going to take place. I'm going to read verses seven and eight. He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains, merely the beginning of birth pains. So what I want to do is I, I want to I put this passage on your outline, and I want to highlight a couple of things. We, we typically, I'll go through this, I highlight all of it. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. He says, for nation shall rise against nation. And you see that word there is ethnos, shall rise against ethnos, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences. Many of your Bibles leave out the word pestilences um, and earthquakes in diverse places. And then in verse eight, I'm just going to read it from the Bible. All these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So he's going to liken these things as, as to birth pains. So what happens is that um, because they're birth pains, these things, when they begin, when a woman gets pregnant, you have this very long pregnancy and there's this growing pregnancy 
discomfort. Ladies, would that be an accurate way of saying it? So it becomes more and more uncomfortable. And then, um, but at a certain point, labor kicks in. Now, sometimes you have some false starts to labor. You know, you think it's labor and, and it's not. When uh, Cheryl was pregnant with the twins back in 2012, we went to the hospital like five times thinking, this is it. But it wasn't. So there was kind of like false starts. But when labor kicks in at a certain point after a long pregnancy, labor kicks in and then you have those birth pains, those contractions, they become more and more intense and closer and closer together. And that is so intense and so close together. And then the baby's born then the baby's born. So it's, it's painful, but it's actually pointing to something very, very good. So a couple of things in that little passage. First of all, and, and again, we normally go through all of it. I just want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, he says, nation will rise against nation. And I highlighted there that that word is ethnos will rise against ethnos. And um, if you were translating this word 500 years ago, you would probably say nation would rise against nation um, because if you were French, you lived in France. If you were Italian, you lived in Italy. The world was not a melting pot as it is today. So now we would probably uh, translate this word to say ethnic group uh, will rise against ethnic group. And uh, we've certainly seen that in the world and we've seen that in our country. And here's what I can tell you because it says that this will be a birth pain. It's not going to get better and better. It's going to become more and more intense. And that's very, very sad, but that's going to be one of the birth pains that he points out. So what I wanted to just say on, on that very quickly is that you'll remember, for those of us who are believers, how are we supposed to uh, view, respond to, to some of these things? So you'll remember back as we've been traveling through the book of Genesis, God created Adam, and Adam was unique. He was different than the rest of creation. You'll recall that Adam had to name the animals, remember that? And as he's doing that, he notices something. He notices that they all have mates, but I don't have a mate. And God used that to reveal something that was missing in his life. So God created the animals, but he created them with mates. Now, Adam was not created with a mate. So what did God do? Well, God caused Adam to fall asleep and uh, most of your Bibles will say he took a rib from Adam, literally from Adam. More accurately, it's from Adam's side. You can say his side or his rib, either way. Um, and then God creates Eve. So the idea was that they began as one. It was Adam taken from Adam. And then when Adam and Eve come together, they really are one because they began as one, which is very different than the rest of the creation. So Adam then looks on and he sees his wife. And then in Genesis 3, I put it on your outline, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living, all the living. The idea is that all humans, you, me, every human, comes from one ancestor, comes from Adam, and comes from Eve. Evolutionists in the church reject that. Evolutionists in the church believe that man began springing up around the globe, uh, that we began to evolve ultimately from primates. 
Now, what you might not know that evolutionists teach is that we don't all come from the same primates. So if you were to go to the Scopes trial, do you remember the Scopes trial? So in that, they held uh, that those of us who come, who have a lighter complexion, that we originated, we evolved from chimpanzees, which seemed ludicrous until I looked at some of my family members. <laughs> and you're probably thinking of some of your family members. But they held that different races, different levels of melanin, uh, came from different primates, that we didn't all come from the same primate. So they reject the Adam and Eve story. If you're an evolutionist in the church, you reject Adam and Eve. You reject what God says about this. God, on the other hand, took a very different view. God said in Genesis chapter 5, there in your outline, it says, when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. It's going to be very different than the rest of creation. He created them, male and female, and blessed them when they were created, and he called them man. That was their race. But the, the Hebrew word for man is just Adam. We say Adam. He called them Adam. So from God's perspective, he created one race. When man and woman who come from each other, uh, unique in the creation, when they come together, they uh, not just become one, but they create a more complete picture of who God is, a more complete likeness of who God is. And so God called them man or Adam. Now, God created one race, and it was called the race of man or the race of Adam. That race in its creation is the image of God. Satan will always try to come along and distort God's view of how God designed it. So he will want us to think that we are different races. We have one ancestor, Adam and Eve. Um, but then not only that, but in the creation story, the two became one flesh. Man and woman come together and they become one flesh. Any other perspective is a distortion of how God created it man and man, woman and woman, or man and several women, or any other combination is a distortion of God's creation. Satan will always attack the creation of God and try to distort it as best that he can. The creation was so important, so important, that in the New Testament, when Paul the apostle would go around and he would preach, if he spoke to Jewish people, he never talked about the creation because for them it was a given. But every time, every single time, Paul would speak to people who looked very different than him, uh, different languages, different culture, he would always begin by talking about the creation. So there on your outline, in Acts chapter 17, he says, from one man, as he's preaching to people who have no idea about the God of the Bible, he begins by saying, from one man, he made every nation, and that word is ethnos. We all come from one ancestor, according to God's perspective. So I want you to write this down. God's view is that there's one race with many cultures. One race with many cultures. I've given you a couple of verses, but there's a fantastic book, if you want to track this down. It's called One Race, One Blood by Ken Ham. 
And uh, it's, it's a whole book. I've just given you a couple of verses, hopefully to, to begin your thinking. But the reason, um, when, when God says that we're one race, that's why if you need an organ transplant, nobody ever asks the question, well, how light or dark are they? Because it doesn't matter because we're one race from God's perspective. Now, not everybody outside the church or inside the church has gotten that memo, uh, as you, you know, but, but we need to get that memo. If my grandfather were to see what my, ch- my family looked like, he would roll over in his grave. But because um, a very different generation, very different perspective. But if you're a creationist, you have to come to the place that we are all one race. So anyways, so then it goes on. And then did you notice in that little paragraph there, it talks about there'll be famines and pestilences. Everybody see that? Famines and pestilences. So we've been through a pestilence this past year, unlike anything the world, you and I, have ever seen. So regardless of whether you believe that we've been through a pandemic, a scamdemic, or a plandemic, uh, I, I don't, I'm not qualified to speak on those things, although I might have some stronger uh, opinions, but here, here's what I can tell you. When he says that pestilences will be like birth pains, what that means, what that means is it's going to become more intense and closer and closer together. It is not going to go away. It is not going to go, it, it's going to get worse. And so you just need to know that. So, so um, interesting, last year, you couldn't buy or sell unless you wore a mask. Now the push is you won't be able to buy or sell unless you take a jab or whatever you want to call it. But that's where it's going. That's where it's going. And it's going to be like birth pains. It's going to get worse and more and more intense. All right. Well, that was some encouraging word there. <laughs> But here's what I would say. Um, You live in South Florida. We have hurricanes. The best time to prepare is before the the weatherman is talking about the hurricane. You know, so you you always want to be prepared for any eventuality and just think that through. So Matthew goes on in in, uh, Matthew 24 with the overview. But I want to talk about the sign of his coming because that's what they've asked and that's the question that he is answering. And uh, we're going to look at the sign. And the reason this becomes the sign is because when Jesus says this, he says, it's at this point, I am standing at the door. So you want to keep that in mind. I put verses 32 and 33 in your outline. You can read them in your Bible or on the outline. Uh, Jesus it goes right to the sign. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. And I put Hosea 9, 10 there on your outline because in the Bible, any time you, you come to the place where um, the Bible's using the fig tree as a symbol, it's always a reference to the nation of Israel. Uh, every, every single time. So when it, you know, the fig tree will never be a reference to the Philistines, the Gergeshites, or anybody else. It's always Israel. She said, learn the par- parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near, the next event. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. How near? Right at the door. So again, In the Bible, when the fig tree is used as a symbol, it's always a reference to the nation of Israel. So verse 32, he says, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. The idea is that a fig tree 
during the winter, and you know this if you've ever lived up north, that the trees, it looks like they're dead, they become dormant, the leaves fall off, and they look very, very dead. But at a certain point, those trees, and in this case, he's talking about the fig tree, this tree comes back to life. And uh, when it begins to bloom, uh, you know summer is, is right there. It, it's just a few weeks away. So when, when you look at this, the idea is that Israel is going to look dead for a very long period of time. Israel ceased to exist as a nation in 70 AD. And at a certain point, it's going to come back to life. Israel is the only nation on the planet in the history of the world that existed as a nation, ceased to exist as a nation in 70 AD, and then became a nation again in 1948. He says, when you see that, know that he is standing at the door. Well, verse 34, there in your Bible, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's talking about the generation that sees that fig tree, Israel, become a nation again. He's not talking about the the generation 2,000 years ago, but the generation that sees Israel become a nation again. My mom was eight years old when Israel became a nation in 1948. That generation has not passed away. Uh, They're they're getting up there, but they haven't passed away. In this case, you you don't want to focus in on is a generation 40 years, 100 years. No, that generation will not pass away. Uh, they, They won't die off before he comes back. So Jesus knows how incredible this sounds, that that would be the last generation. And so in verse 35, he says, so heaven and earth will not pass, or heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The idea is that you can take it to the bank, uh, that this is how it's going to be. Verse 36, he says, but of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. So we won't know the day, we won't know the hour, but he says, but that generation will not pass away. So there on your outline, it says the last generation begins when Israel becomes a nation again. But then he takes the, the, the answer a little bit further, what would be the sign of his coming, and we pick it up in verse 37. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the son, the coming of the son, so will the coming of the son of man be. So we're going to look at that today. Now, interesting also, birth pains, more and more intense. And, and yet he says, but there'll also be buying, selling, building, planting, marrying, giving in marriage. We've been through a worldwide pandemic. uh, And so on the one hand, the world seems shut down, but it was in the midst of that birth pain, we built this building. I, my daughter got married, things kind of went on. So it was kind of business as usual and a very unusual time. So the idea is you're going to see both of these things happening at the same time. So there's not going to be a worldwide collapse, but things are going to get more and more intense. But notice how this part of the story ends. In verse 40, it says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two men in the field, that refers to the daytime. 
Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And women would grind early in the morning. And Luke, I didn't put it on your outline, but, but Luke adds that there'll be two in bed. One will be taken and one will be left. We refer to this as the rapture of the church. Uh, not everybody goes, only the believer. But one will be taken and uh, you know, very normal things going on, but one will disappear and then one will be left. We've talked about that a great deal. There on your outline, I put verses 30, verse 37 from the NIV, and it just says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. He never says it will be like the days of Ezekiel or Isaiah. He says it would be like the days of Noah. And uh, so the question is, what was going on in Noah's time that was so unusual that he points to that time to say it's going to be just like that uh, when the Son of Man returns for the church. For that reason, I want you to turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. Have I put you to sleep yet? Good, good, good. All right. Well, you guys ready for a little weirdness today? Okay. All righty. So Genesis chapter six, I'm going to read verse one. Now I'm, we're going to go through this a little bit next week too. So we're not going to cover everything this week. It says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them just very quickly at the time of Christ, there were only between 80 and 90 million people on the planet. It wasn't until the 1860s that, um, the world reached its first billion people, but in the past 150 years, we are almost eight billion people. So men began to multiply on the earth. So that's one of the things that we're going to see. So it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land that daughters were born to them. So here's where it gets kind of creepy, but it also gets kind of fun. That the sons of God, so that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever because he is also, he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. 120 years till the flood comes is what he's saying. Then the Nephilim, verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And we'll unpack some of that next week. So it'll be just like the days of Noah. So the first thing, I'm gonna oversimplify this, write this down. What we are going to find is that they began to mix and alter DNA. You wanna write that down, mix and alter DNA. You have what's called the sons of God, and the sons of God, Bani Elohim, is always a reference in the Old Testament to angels. In this case, it's going to be fallen angels. So I want you to write down sons of God, Bani Elohim, just means angels. So the story is that the sons of God, Bani Elohim, came into the daughters of men. Um, so the next question is, um, can angels do that? Well, interesting Jesus was asked a question about marriage in heaven. Who are you married to in heaven? And he says this, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Why did he feel the need to say angels in heaven? Well, not all angels are in heaven. 
Um, but the angels that are in heaven, they don't do that. So this is a very odd passage that he says the Benai Elohim, sons of God, came into the daughters of men. So whenever you interpret the Bible, you always want to ask, what does the rest of the Bible say? Does the Bible speak about this anywhere else? And it does, and we'll see more next week. But there on your outline, when Jude, Jude is the, uh, the book just before Revelation. It's considered the introduction to the book of Revelation. Jude says this, speaking of this time, the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So here it's talking about angels that abandoned their proper abode. What was their proper abode? Well, I would say it was the the spiritual realm. They, They were supposed to stay in that realm. But they did something that was so evil, so wrong, that God chose to lock them up in eternal bonds until that day of judgment. So what angels are now in those eternal bonds? Well, Peter tells us this, says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, they're still there, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the, and you want to underline the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Genesis 6 is all about the days of Noah and the construction of the ark. And so it refers to the angels there who were disobedient in that time, exactly what Genesis tells us. So that's what the rest of the Bible says. Well, when you interpret scripture, you ask yourself, what else does the Bible say? And we'll see even more next week. But then the, the next question that you have to ask yourself is, um, how did they understand this? I mean, what was their perspective on this, those who heard this uh, for the very first time? Well, there's a, an interesting book I want to just highlight real quick for us. It's called the book of, it's, you'll, you'll um, see it spelled with a J, and people call it Jasher or Yashar. There's no J in Hebrew. So, um, so it'll either be called Jasher or Yashar. And uh, I want to just show you a couple of verses on the screen if I can. And so you'll recall Joshua. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jasher or Yashar. So the idea is that there's this book called Yashar, Yasher, however you want to say it. And uh, if you want to find out more information on what actually happened on that day, just go find this book and, and it'll give you more information. Well, we actually have that book. We have it right here. Let me show you another passage. In uh, 2 Samuel, it says, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son, Jonathan, and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow, of the bow. Uh, it is written in the book of Jashar. Everybody see that? So the idea is, if, if you want to find out more about that song that they sang, all you got to do is go to the book of Jashar, and it'll give you more information. The Bible points you to that if you want to get more information. Now, in the New Testament, Paul is writing to Timothy. It's very interesting. As Paul writes to Timothy, he says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, who as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. 
Now, that, that's a, an interesting verse because what that's talking about, do you remember the story where Moses goes to Egypt and he takes the staff and he throws down the staff and it turns into a serpent? And uh, then the priest, the Egyptian priest, they throw down their staffs. Well, when you read the Bible account, it just says the Egyptian priest, they did the same thing. But it doesn't give their names. So where did Paul get the names Janus and Jambres because it's not in the Bible? Well, it's, it's in this book here, the book of Yashar. And, uh, and so if you want to find out more about that, you just open the book of Yashar and, 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 and you read that. Now, it's not scripture. It's not Bible. Um, but what it does is it reflects the thinking of how they understood the events to be in that time. So when you come to Genesis chapter six, this little book of Jashar, Yashar, uh, talks about this. And here's how it was understood in this book, speaking to the, uh, about the fallen angels. They went into the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice. And the sons of men in those days took from the cattle of the earth, the beast of the field, and the fowls of the air, and taught the mixture of animals of one species with the other, in order therewith to provoke the Lord. And God saw that the whole earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth, all men and all animals. So this teaches that in that time period, they were cross mixing different species together. Do you remember when we were in Genesis chapter one and we highlighted the emphasis of all the times that God says, after their own kind, after their own kind? The idea was you weren't supposed to mess with after their own kind. Well, still interested? So there's another interesting book and it's called the book of Enoch, which we have. And uh, Jude quotes from this book. So in Jude, it just says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone. And it goes on, and that's Jude 14 and and 15. I'm not going to read all of that. You say, well, where, where does that come from? Well, that comes from the opening chapter of this book of Jude, where it just says, and behold, he comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And it, it just says what Jude says. Now that's interesting because the book of Enoch also talks about what's taking place in uh, Genesis chapter six. And it says this, uh, God is speaking to these fallen angels. And he says, wherefore you have left the high holy and eternal heaven and lain with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken to yourselves wives and done like the children of the earth and begotten giants as your sons. Though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourself with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh and as children of men and have lusted after flesh and blood as, and, 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 and it goes on. But the idea is it says exactly what Genesis chapter six says. My point in telling you that is that it was their understanding that it was fallen angels that came and cohabitated with the daughters of men. So uh, Paul and Jude point directly to these books. As if you want more information, just, just go there. So Genesis tells us in verse two, chapter six, verse two, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful 
and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. But verse 4 tells us what was the result of that. Well, verse 4, it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those who were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's the result, this Nephilim. So in verse 4, just wave at me. How many of your Bibles, when it says the Nephilim were on the earth, how many of your Bibles say the giants were on the earth? Okay, yeah, several, that, that would be the King James Version translates it that way. Now, Nephilim comes from the word nephal, which just means fallen or to fall. M is the plural in Hebrew. So Nephilim just means fallen ones. You want to write that down. They're fallen ones. They're not really human, so they can't be saved. And they're not really angelic. They're sort of this mixed thing. The Bible will describe them as giants. When it says that they were men of renown, that's not in the positive sense. Another way of looking at that is to say they were tyrants or bullies. So why did they do that? Why did they do that? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, the gospel is given, Satan hears, God preaches the gospel to the certain And God says there will be the seed of the woman. She will give birth to one. And uh, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Satan realizes that that point that she's going to be giving birth to a son. A son will come. And that son, at some point, will be the Messiah, the Christ, who will end the work of the devil. It's at that point Satan goes to work and says, how can I defile the human race so that they're not human anymore so that that one, the seed of the woman, can't come into existence. And so this creates this plan. Do you find that interesting today? So it would be just as it was in the days of Noah. On your outline, a few lines down, uh, I have search transhumanism. Does everybody see that? Okay, you want to go home, you want to get on your computer, and you want to search transhumanism. So here's an article. This is from the Daily Mail. 150 human-animal hybrids grown in UK lab. UK labs. Embryos have been produced secretly for the past three years. In laboratories all around the world, they are taking human DNA, and they are mixing it with something else uh, to create these hybrids It won't fully be human, and it won't fully be something else. And uh, we're going to stop right there, and then we'll pick it up next week. (laughs) Because we're out of time. So, So did you find that interesting today? Good. So next week, it'll even be more interesting. And uh, the Bible is a lot more supernatural than, than we might think. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you open our eyes. Uh, we realize that we live in a generation where Satan wants us blinded to the things that you have revealed. And yet, Lord, we want to know you. We want to know the truth. And it is interesting that we live in the only generation where human DNA, human DNA is being actively mixed uh, with other things. And um, 
Help us to be wise and aware as we go forward and uh, help us to apply some of these things to, to our lives as we go. Pick it up there next week. God, take care of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.